0: Article 14 of Ecclesiastical Order The 14th article, in which we say that in the Church the administration of the sacraments and word ought to be allowed no one unless he be rightly called, they receive, but with the proviso that we employ canonical ordination. Concerning this subject, we have frequently testified in this assembly that it is our greatest wish to maintain church polity and the grades in the church, even though they have been made by human authority. For we know that church discipline was instituted by the fathers in the manner laid down in the ancient canons with a good and useful intention. But the bishops either compel our priests to reject and condemn this kind of doctrine which we have confessed, or, by a new and unheard-of cruelty, they put to death the poor innocent men. These causes hinder our priests from acknowledging such bishops. Thus, the cruelty of the bishops is the reason why the canonical government, which we greatly desire to maintain, is in some places dissolved. Let them see to it how they will give an account to God for dispersing the church. In this matter, our consciences are not in danger because since we know that our confession is true, godly, and Catholic, we ought not to approve the cruelty of those who persecute this doctrine. And we know that the church is among those who teach the word of God aright, and administer the sacraments aright, and not with those who not only by their edicts endeavor to efface God's word, but also put to death those who teach what is right and true, towards whom, even though they do something contrary to the canons, yet the very canons are milder. Furthermore, we wish here again to testify that we will gladly maintain ecclesiastical and canonical government, provided the bishops only cease to rage against our churches. This, our desire, will clear us both before God and among all nations to all posterity from the imputation against us that the authority of the bishops is being undermined when men read and hear, that although protesting against the unrighteous cruelty of the bishops, we could not obtain justice. Article 15. Of Human Traditions in the Church. In the fifteenth article, they receive the first part, in which we say that such ecclesiastical rites are to be observed as can be observed without sin, and are of profit in the Church for tranquility and good order. They altogether condemn the second part, in which we say that human traditions instituted to appease God, to merit grace, and make satisfactions for sins are contrary to the gospel. Although, in the confession itself, when treating of the distinction of meats, we have spoken at sufficient length concerning traditions, yet certain things should be briefly recounted here. Although we supposed that the adversaries would defend human traditions on other grounds, yet we did not think that this would come to pass, namely, that they would condemn this article, that we do not merit the remission of sins or grace by the observance of human traditions. Since, therefore, this article has been condemned, we have an easy and plain case. The adversaries are now openly Judaizing, are openly suppressing the gospel by the doctrines of demons. For Scripture calls traditions doctrines of demons when it is taught that religious rites are serviceable to merit the remission of sins and grace. For they are then obscuring the gospel, the benefit of Christ, and the righteousness of faith. The gospel teaches that by faith we receive freely for Christ's sake the remission of sins and are reconciled to God the adversaries on the other hand appoint another mediator namely these traditions on account of these they wish to acquire remission of sins on account of these they wish to appease god's wrath but christ clearly says matthew 15:9 in vain do they worship me teaching for doctrines the commandments of men we have above discussed at length that men are justified by faith when they believe that they have a reconciled God, not because of our works, but gratuitously for Christ's sake. It is certain that this is the doctrine of the gospel, because Paul clearly teaches Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Now these men say that men merit the remission of sins by these human observances. What else is this than to appoint another justifier, a mediator other than Christ? Paul says to the Galatians five four, Christ has become of no effect unto you. What Whosoever of you are justified by the law. That is, if you hold that by the observance of the law, you merit to be accounted righteous before God, Christ will profit you nothing. For what need of Christ have those who hold that they are righteous by their own observance of the law? God has set forth Christ with the promise that on account of this mediator and not on account of our righteousness, he wishes to be propitious to us. But these men hold that God is reconciled and propitious because of the traditions and not because of Christ. Therefore, they take away from Christ the honor of mediator. Neither, so far as this matter is concerned, is there any difference between our traditions and the ceremonies of Moses. Paul condemns the ceremonies of Moses just as he condemns traditions for the reason that they were regarded as works which merit righteousness before God. Thus, the office of Christ and the righteousness of faith were obscured. Therefore, the law being removed and traditions being removed, he contends that the remission of sins has been promised not because of our works, but freely because of Christ, if only by faith we receive it for the promise is not received except by faith. Since, therefore, by faith we have the remission of sins, since by faith we have a propitious God for Christ's sake, it is an error and impiety to declare that because of these observances we merit the remission of sins. If anyone should say here that we do not merit the remission of sins, but that those who have already been justified by these traditions merit grace, Paul again replies, Galatians 2.17, that Christ would be the minister of sin if, after justification, we must hold that henceforth we are not accounted righteous for Christ's sake, but we ought first by other observances to merit that we be accounted righteous. Likewise, Galatians 3.15, though it be but a man's covenant, no man addeth thereto. Therefore neither to God's covenant who promises that for Christ's sake he will be propitious to us ought we to add that we must first through these observances attain such merit as to be regarded as accepted and righteous however what need is there of a long discussion no tradition was instituted by the holy fathers with the design that it should merit the remission of sins or righteousness but they have been instituted for the sake of good order in the church and for the sake of tranquility and when any one wishes to institute certain works to merit the remission of sins or righteousness how will he know that these works please god since he has not the testimony of god's word how without god's command and word will he render men certain of god's will does he not everywhere in the prophets prohibit men from instituting without his commandment peculiar rites of worship in Ezekiel twenty eighteen and 19, it is written, Walk ye not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them. If men are allowed to institute religious rites, and, the, and through these rites merit grace, the religious rites of all the heathen will have to be approved, and the rites instituted by Jeroboam. 1 Kings 12:26, and by others outside of the law will have to be approved. For what difference does it make if we have been allowed to institute religious rites that are profitable for meriting grace, or by these they merited remission of sins and righteousness, and yet did not know the righteousness of faith? Lastly. Whence are we rendered certain that rights instituted by men without God's command justify, inasmuch as nothing can be affirmed of God's will without God's word? What if God does not approve these services? How, therefore, do the adversaries affirm that they justify? Without God's word and testimony, this cannot be affirmed. And Paul says, Romans fourteen twenty-three. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. But as these services have no testimony of God's word, conscience must doubt as to whether they please God. And what need is there of words on a subject so manifest? If the adversaries defend these human services as meriting justification, grace, and the remission of sins, they simply establish the kingdom of Antichrist, For the kingdom of Antichrist is a new service of God devised by human authority rejecting Christ. Just as the kingdom of Muhammad has services and works through which it wishes to be justified before God, nor does it hold that men are gratuitously justified before God by faith for Christ's sake. Thus the papacy also will be a part of the kingdom of Antichrist if it thus defends human services as justifying. For the honor is taken away from Christ when they teach that we are not justified gratuitously by faith for Christ's sake, but by such services, especially when they teach that such services are not only useful for justification, but are also necessary as they hold above an Article 7, where they condemn us for saying that unto true unity of the church it is not necessary that rights instituted by men should everywhere be alike. Daniel 11:38 indicates that new human services will be the very form and constitution of the kingdom of antichrist. For he says thus, "But in his estate shall he honor the god of forces, and a god whom his fathers knew not, shall he honor with gold and silver and precious stones." Here he describes new services because he says that such a God shall be worshipped as the fathers were ignorant of. For although the Holy Fathers themselves had both rites and traditions, yet they did not hold that these matters are useful or necessary for justification. They did not obscure the glory and office of Christ, but taught that we are justified by faith for Christ's sake and not for the sake of these human services. But they observed human rights for the sake of bodily advantage, that the people might know at what time they should assemble, that, for the sake of example, all things in the churches might be done in order and becomingly. Lastly, that the common people might receive a sort of training, for the distinction of times and the variety of rites are of service in admonishing the common people. The fathers had these reasons for maintaining the rites, and for these reasons, we also judge it to be right that traditions be maintained. And we are greatly surprised that the adversaries contend for another design of traditions, namely, that they merit the remission of sins, grace, or justification. What else is this than to honor God with gold and silver and precious stones, that is, to hold that God becomes reconciled by a variety in clothing ornaments, and by similar rites as are infinite in human traditions. Paul writes to the Colossians 2.23 that traditions have a show of wisdom, and indeed they have. For this good order is very becoming in the church, and for this reason is necessary. But human reason, because it does not understand the righteousness of faith, naturally imagines that such works justify men because they reconcile God, etc. Thus the common people among the Israelites thought, and by this opinion increased such ceremonies, just as among us they have grown in the monasteries. Thus human reason judges also of bodily exercises, of fasts. Although the end of these is to restrain the flesh, reason falsely adds that they are services which justify. As Thomas writes, Fasting avails for the extinguishing and the prevention of guilt. These are the words of Thomas. Thus the semblance of wisdom and righteousness in such works deceives men. And the examples of the saints are added, and when men desire to imitate these, they imitate for the most part the outward exercises, their faith they do not imitate. After this semblance of wisdom and righteousness has deceived men, Then infinite evils follow. The gospel concerning the righteousness of faith in Christ is obscured, and vain confidence in such works succeeds. Then the commandments of God are obscured. These works arrogate to themselves the title of a perfect and spiritual life, and are far preferred to the works of God's commandments, as the works of one's own calling, the administration of the state, the management of a family, married life, the bringing up of children. Compared with these ceremonies, the latter are judged to be profane, so that they are exercised by many with some doubt of conscience. For it is known that many have abandoned the administration of the state and married life in order to embrace these observances as better and holier. Nor is this enough. When the persuasion has taken possession of minds that such observances are necessary to justification, consciences are in miserable anxiety because they cannot exactly fulfill all observances. For how many are there who could enumerate all these observances? There are immense books, yea, whole libraries, containing not a syllable concerning Christ, concerning faith in Christ, concerning the good works of one's own calling, but which only collect the traditions and interpretations by which they are sometimes rendered quite rigorous and sometimes relaxed. How that most excellent man, Gerson, is tortured while he searches for the grades and extent of the precepts. Nevertheless, he is not able to fix epi chaos, mitigation, in a definite grade. Meanwhile, he deeply deplores the dangers to godly consciences which this rigid interpretation of of the traditions produces. Against this semblance of wisdom and righteousness in human rights which deceives men, let us therefore fortify ourselves by the word of God, and let us know, first of all, that these neither merit before God the remission of sins or justification, nor are necessary for justification we have above cited some testimonies and paul is full of them to the colossians two sixteen seventeen 17 he clearly says let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the sabbath days which are a shadow of the things to come but the body is of christ here now he embraces at the same time both the law of moses and human traditions, in order that the adversaries may not elude these testimonies according to their custom, upon the ground that Paul is speaking only of the law of Moses. But he clearly testifies here that he is speaking of human traditions. However, the adversaries do not see what they are saying. If the gospel says that the ceremonies of Moses, which were divinely instituted, do not justify, how much less do human traditions justify? Neither have the bishops the power to institute services, as though they justified, or were necessary for justification. Yea, the apostles, Acts 15.10 say, Why tempt ye God to put a yoke, etc., where Peter declares this purpose to burden the church a great sin? And Paul forbids the Galatians 5.1 to be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Therefore, it is the will of the apostles that this liberty remain in the church, that no services of the law or of traditions be judged as necessary, just as in the law ceremonies were for a time necessary, lest the righteousness of faith be obscured, if men judge that these services merit justification or are necessary for justification. Many seek in traditions various epi mitigations, in order to heal consciences, and yet they do not find any sure grades by which to free consciences from these chains. But just as Alexander once for all solved the Gordian knot by cutting it with his sword when he could not disentangle it, so the apostles once for all free consciences from traditions, especially if they are taught to merit justification. The apostles compel us to oppose this doctrine by teaching and examples. They compel us to teach that traditions do not justify, that they are not necessary for justification, that no one ought to frame or receive traditions with the opinion that they merit justification. Then even though any one should observe them, let him observe them without superstitions as civil customs, just as without superstition Soldiers are clothed in one way and scholars in another. The apostles violate tradition and are excused by Christ, for the example was to be shown the Pharisees that these services are unprofitable. And if our people neglect some traditions that are of little advantage, they are now sufficiently excused when these are required as though they merit justification. For such an opinion with regard to traditions is impious. But we cheerfully maintain the old traditions made in the church for the sake of usefulness and tranquility, and we interpret them in a more moderate way, to the exclusion of the opinion which holds that they justify. And our enemies falsely accuse us of abolishing good ordinances and church discipline. For we can truly declare that the public form of the churches is more becoming with us than with the adversaries, that the true worship of God is observed in our churches in a more Christian honorable way. And if anyone will consider it a right, we conform to the canons more truly than do the adversaries. With the adversaries, unwilling celebrants and those hired for pay, and very frequently only for pay, celebrate the masses. They sing psalms, not that they may learn or pray, but for the sake of the service, as though this work were a service, or at least for the sake of reward. With us, many use the Lord's Supper every Lord's day, but after having been first instructed, examined, and absolved, The children sing psalms in order that they may learn. The people also sing Latin and German psalms in order that they may either learn or pray. With the adversaries, there is no catechization of the children whatsoever, concerning which even the canons give commands. With us, the pastors and ministers of the church are compelled publicly to instruct and hear the youth, and this ceremony produces the best fruits among the adversaries in many regions as in Italy and Spain. But the chief service of God is to teach the gospel. And when the adversaries do preach, they speak of human traditions, of the worship of saints and similar trifles, which the people justly loathe Therefore, they are deserted immediately in the beginning after the text of the gospel has been recited. A few better ones begin now to speak of good works, but of the righteousness of faith, of faith in Christ, of the consolation of consciences, they say nothing. Yea, this most wholesome part of the gospel they rail at with their reproaches. This blessed doctrine, the precious holy gospel, they call Lutheran. On the contrary, in our churches, all the sermons are occupied with such topics as these, of repentance, of the fear of God, of faith in Christ, of the righteousness of faith, of the consolation of consciences by faith, of the exercises of faith, of prayer, what its nature should be and that we should be fully confident that it is efficacious, that it is heard of the cross, of the authority of magistrates in all civil ordinances, of the distinction between the kingdom of Christ or the spiritual kingdom and political affairs, of marriage, of the education and instruction of children, of chastity, of all the offices of love. From this condition of the churches it may be judged that we diligently maintain church discipline and godly ceremonies and good church customs, and of the mortification of the flesh and discipline of the body we thus teach, just as the confession states that a true and not a feigned mortification occurs through the cross and afflictions by which God exercises us when God breaks our will, inflicts the cross and trouble in these we must obey God's will, as paul says romans twelve one present your bodies as a living sacrifice and these are the spiritual exercises of fear and faith but in addition to this mortification which occurs through the cross there is also a voluntary kind of exercise necessary of which Christ says luke 21:34 take heed to yourselves lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and paul 1 corinthians 9:27 I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. And these exercises are to be undertaken not because they are services that justify, but in order to curb the flesh, lest satiety may overpower us and render us secure and indifferent, the result of which is that men indulge and obey the dispositions of the flesh. This diligence ought to be perpetual because it has the perpetual command of God, And this prescribed form of certain meats and times does nothing towards curbing the flesh. For it is more luxurious and sumptuous than other feasts, and not even the adversaries observe the form given in the canons. This topic concerning traditions contains many and difficult questions of controversy, and we have actually experienced, that traditions are truly snares of consciences. When they are exacted as necessary, they torture in wonderful ways the conscience omitting any observance, as godly hearts indeed experience when in the canonical hours they have omitted a compline or offended against them in a similar way. Again, their abrogation has its own evils and its own questions. On the other hand, to teach absolute freedom has also its doubts and questions because the common people need outward discipline and instruction. But we have an easy and plain case because the adversaries condemn us for teaching that human traditions do not merit the remission of sins. Likewise, they require universal traditions, as they call them, as necessary for justification and place them in Christ's stead. Here, we have Paul as a constant champion, who everywhere contends that these observances neither justify nor are necessary in addition to the righteousness of faith. And nevertheless, we teach that in these matters, the use of liberty is to be so controlled that the inexperienced may not be offended, and on account of the abuse of liberty, may not become more hostile to the true doctrine of the gospel, or that without a reasonable cause, nothing in customary rites be changed, but that in order to cherish harmony, such old customs be observed as can be observed without sin or without great inconvenience. And in this very assembly, we have shown sufficiently that for, for love's sake, we do not refuse to observe adiaphora with others, even though they should have some disadvantage. But we have judged that such public harmony as could indeed be produced without offense to consciences ought to be preferred to all other advantages. But concerning this entire subject, we shall speak after a while, when we shall treat of vows and ecclesiastical power. Article 16 of political order. The 16th article the adversaries receive without any exception, in which we have confessed that it is lawful for the Christian to bear civil office, sit in judgment, determine matters by the imperial laws and other laws in present force, appoint just punishments, engage in just wars, act as a soldier, make legal contracts, hold property, take an oath, When magistrates require it, contract marriage. Finally, that legitimate civil ordinances are good creatures of God and divine ordinances which a Christian can use with safety. This entire topic concerning the distinction between the kingdom of Christ and a political kingdom has been explained to advantage in the literature of our writers, that the kingdom of Christ is spiritual, to wit, beginning in the heart the knowledge of God, the fear of God, and faith, eternal righteousness, and eternal life. Meanwhile, it permits us outwardly to use legitimate political ordinances of every nation in which we live, just as it permits us to use medicine, or the art of building, or food, drink, air. Neither does the gospel bring new laws concerning the civil state, but commands that we obey present laws, whether they have been framed by heathen or by others, and that in this obedience we should exercise love. For Karlstadt was insane in imposing upon us the judicial laws of Moses. Concerning these subjects, our theologians have written more fully, because the monks diffused many pernicious opinions in the church. They called a community of property, the polity of the gospel. They said that not to hold property, not to vindicate oneself at law, were evangelical counsels. These opinions greatly obscure the gospel and the spiritual kingdom and are dangerous to the commonwealth. For the gospel does not destroy the state or family, but much rather approves them and bids us obey them as a divine ordinance not only on account of punishment, but also on account of conscience. Julian the Apostate, Celsus, and very many others made the objection to Christians that the gospel would rend asunder states because it prohibited legal redress and taught certain other things not at all suited to to political association. And these questions wonderfully exercised Origen, Nazianzen, and others, although, indeed, they can be most readily explained if we keep in mind the fact that the gospel does not introduce laws concerning the civil state, but is the remission of sins and the beginning of a new life in the hearts of believers. Besides, it not only approves outward governments but subjects us to them. Romans 13.1 Just as we have been necessarily placed under the laws of seasons, The changes of winter and summer as divine ordinances. The gospel forbids private redress, and Christ inculcates this so frequently with the design that the apostles should not think that they ought to seize the governments from those who held otherwise, just as the Jews dreamed concerning the kingdom of the Messiah, but that they might know they ought to teach concerning the spiritual kingdom that it does not change the civil state. Therefore, private redress is prohibited, not by advice, but by a command. Matthew 5.39, Romans 12.19 Public redress, which is made through the office of the magistrate, is not advised against, but is commanded and is a work of God, according to Paul, Romans thirteen one. Now, the different kinds of public redress are legal decisions, capital punishment, wars, military service it is manifest how incorrectly many writers have judged concerning these matters because they were in the error that the gospel is an external new and monastic form of government and did not see that the gospel brings eternal righteousness to hearts while it outwardly approves the civil state it is also a most vain delusion that it is Christian perfection not to hold property. For Christian perfection consists not in the contempt of civil ordinances, but in dispositions of the heart, in great fear of God, in great faith, just as Abraham, David, Daniel, even in great wealth and while exercising civil power, were no less perfect than any hermits. But the monks, especially the barefoot monks, have spread this outward hypocrisy before the eyes of men, so that it could not be seen in what things true perfection exists. With what praises they have brought forward this communion of property, as though it were evangelical. But these praises have the greatest danger, especially since they differ much from the Scriptures. For Scripture does not command that property be common, but the law of the Decalogue, when it says, Exodus twenty fifteen. Thou shalt not steal, distinguishes rights of ownership and commands each one to hold what is his own. Wycliffe manifestly was raging when he said that priests were not allowed to hold property. There are infinite discussions concerning contracts, in reference to which good consciences can never be satisfied unless they know the rule that it is lawful for a Christian to make use of civil ordinances and laws. This rule protects consciences when it teaches that contracts are lawful before God just to the extent that the magistrates or laws approve them. This entire topic concerning civil affairs has been so clearly set forth by our theologians that very many good men occupied in the state and in business have declared that they have been greatly benefited, who before, troubled by the the opinion of the monks, were in doubt as to whether the gospel allowed these civil offices and business. Accordingly, we have recounted these things in order that those without also may understand by the kind of doctrine which we follow. The authority of magistrates and the dignity of all civil ordinances are not undermined, but are all the more strengthened. The importance of these matters was greatly obscured previously by those silly monastic opinions which far preferred the hypocrisy of poverty and humility to the state and the family, although these have God's command, while this platonic communion has not God's command. Article 17 of Christ's Return to Judgment The seventeenth article, The Adversaries Receive Without Exception, in which we confess that at the consummation of the world Christ shall appear, and shall raise up all the dead, and shall give to the godly eternal life and eternal joys, but shall condemn the ungodly to be punished with the devil without end. Article 18 of Free Will The eighteenth article of Free Will, The Adversaries Receive, although they add some testimonies not at all adapted to this case. They add also a declamation that neither with the Pelagians is too much to be granted to the free will, nor with the Manichians is all freedom to be denied it. Very well. But what difference is there between the Pelagians and our adversaries, since both hold that without the Holy Ghost, men can love God and perform God's commandments with respect to the substance of the acts, and can merit grace and justification by works which reason performs by itself without the Holy Ghost. How many absurdities follow from these Pelagian opinions, which are taught with great authority in the schools. These Augustine, following Paul, refutes with great emphasis, whose judgment we have recounted above in the article of justification. Nor, indeed, do we deny liberty to the human will. The human will has liberty in the choice of works and things which reason comprehends by itself. It can, to a certain extent, render civil righteousness or the righteousness of works. It can speak of God, offer to God a certain service by an outward work, obey magistrates, parents, In the choice of an outward work, it can restrain the hands from murder, from adultery, from theft. Since there is left in human nature reason and judgment concerning objects subjected to the senses, choice between these things and the liberty and power to render civil righteousness are also left. For Scripture calls this righteousness of the flesh, which the carnal nature, that is reason, renders by itself, without the Holy Ghost. Although the power of concupiscence is such that men more frequently obey evil dispositions than sound judgment. And the devil, who is efficacious in the godless, as Paul says, Ephesians 2 2, does not cease to incite this feeble nature to various offenses. These are the reasons why even civil righteousness is rare among men, as we see that not even the philosophers themselves, who seem to have aspired after this righteousness, attained it. But it is false to say that he who performs the works of the commandments without grace does not sin. And they add further that such works also merit de congruo the remission of sins and justification. For human hearts without the Holy Ghost are without the fear of God, without trust toward God. They do not believe that they are heard, forgiven, helped, and preserved by God. Therefore, they are godless. For neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit, Matthew 7, 18. And, without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six. 6. Therefore, although we concede to free will the liberty and power to perform the outward works of the law, yet we do not ascribe to free will these spiritual matters, namely, truly to fear God, truly to believe God, truly to be confident and hold that God regards us, hears us, forgives us, etc. These are the true works of the first table, which the heart cannot render without the Holy Ghost, as Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man, that is, man using only natural strength, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. That is, a person who is not enlightened by the Spirit of God does not, by his natural reason, receive anything of God's will in divine matters. And this can be decided if men consider what their hearts believe concerning God's will, whether they are truly confident that they are regarded and heard by God. Even for saints to retain this faith is difficult, so far is it from existing in the godless. But it is conceived, as we have said above, when terrified hearts hear the gospel and receive consolation. Therefore, such a distribution is of advantage, in which civil righteousness is ascribed to the free will, and spiritual righteousness to the governing of the Holy Ghost in the regenerate. For thus the outward discipline is retained, because all men ought to know equally, both that God requires this civil righteousness, and that, in a measure, we can afford it. And yet a distinction is shown between human and spiritual righteousness, between philosophical doctrine and the doctrine of the Holy Ghost. And it can be understood for what need there is of the Holy Ghost. Nor has this distribution been invented by us, but Scripture most clearly teaches it. Augustine also treats of it, and recently it has been well treated by William of Paris, but it has been wickedly suppressed by those who have dreamt that men can obey God's law without the Holy Ghost, but that the Holy Ghost is given in order that, in addition, it may be considered meritorious. Article 19 of The Cause of Sin The nineteenth article, The Adversaries Receive, in which we confess that, although God only and alone has framed all nature, and preserves all things which exist. Yet, he is not the cause of sin, but the cause of sin is the will in the devil and men, turning itself away from God, according to the saying of Christ concerning the devil, John eight forty four, when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. Article 20 of Good Works In the 20th article, they distinctly lay down these words, namely that they reject and condemn our statement that men do not merit the remission of sins by good works. They clearly declare that they reject and condemn this article. What is to be said on a subject so manifest? Here the framers of the Confutation openly show by what spirit they are led. For what in the church is more certain than that the remission of sins occurs freely for Christ's sake, that Christ, and not our works, is the propitiation for sins? As Peter says, Acts 10.43, To him give all the prophets witness, that through his name, whosoever believeth on him shall receive remission of sins. To this church of the prophets we would rather assent than to these abandoned writers of the Confutation who so impudently blaspheme Christ. For although there were writers who held that after the remission of sins, men are just before God, not by faith, but by works themselves, yet they did not hold this, namely, that the remission of sins itself occurs on account of our works and not freely for Christ's sake. Therefore, the blasphemy of ascribing Christ's honor to our works is not to be endured. These theologians are now entirely without shame if they dare to bring such an opinion into the church. Nor do we doubt that His most excellent imperial majesty and very many of the princes would not have allowed this passage to remain in the confutation if they had been admonished of it. Here, we could cite infinite testimonies from Scripture and from the fathers, but also above, we have said enough on this subject. And there is no more need of testimonies for one who knows why Christ has been given to us, who knows that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Isaiah says, 53, 6, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all. The adversaries, on the other hand, accuse Isaiah and the entire Bible of lying and teach that God lays our iniquities not on Christ, but on our works. Neither are we disposed to mention here the sort of works which they teach. We see that a horrible decree has been prepared against us, which would terrify us still more if we were contending concerning doubtful or trifling subjects. Now, since our consciences understand that by the adversaries the manifest truth is condemned, whose defense is necessary for the church and increases the glory of Christ, we easily despise the terrors of the world and with a strong spirit will bear whatever is to be suffered for the glory of Christ and the advantage of the Church. Who would not rejoice to die in the confession of such articles as that we obtain the remission of sins by faith freely for Christ's sake, that we do not merit the remission of sins by our works? The consciences of the pious will have no sufficiently sure consolation against the terrors of sin and death, and against the devil soliciting to despair, if they do not know that they ought to be confident that that they have remission of sins freely for Christ's sake. This faith sustains and quickens hearts in the most violent conflict with despair. Therefore the cause is one which is worthy that for its sake we should refuse no danger. Whosoever you are that has assented to our confession, do not yield to the wicked, but, on the contrary, go forward the more boldly when the adversaries endeavour by means of terrors and tortures and punishments to drive away from you that consolation which has been tendered to the entire church in this article of ours. Testimonies of scripture will not be wanting to one seeking them, which will establish his mind for Paul, at the top of his voice, as the saying is, cries out romans three twenty four and four sixteen that sins are freely remitted for Christ's sake. It is of faith, he says, that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure. That is, if the promise would depend upon our works, it would not be sure. If remission of sins would be given on account of our works, when would we know that we had obtained it? When would a, a terrified conscience find a work which it would consider sufficient to appease God's wrath? But we spoke of the entire matter above. Thence let the reader derive testimonies. For the unworthy treatment of the subject has been forced from us, the present not discussion, but complaint, that on this topic they have distinctly recorded themselves as disapproving this article of ours, that we obtain remission of sins not on, our account, of, not on account of our works, but by faith and freely on account of Christ. The adversaries also add testimonies to their own condemnation, and it is worthwhile to recite several of them. They quote from Second Peter 1.10, Give diligence to make your calling sure, etc. Now you see, reader, that our adversaries have not wasted labor in learning logic, but have the art of inferring from the Scriptures whatever pleases them. Make your calling sure by good works therefore works merit the remission of sins? A very agreeable mode of reasoning, if one would argue thus concerning a person sentenced to capital punishment, whose punishment has been remitted, the magistrate commands that hereafter you abstain from that which belongs to another, therefore you have merited the remission of the penalty, because you are now abstaining from what belongs to another." Thus to argue is to make a cause out of that which is not a cause. For Peter speaks of works following the remission of sins and teaches why they should be done, namely, that the calling may be sure, that is, lest they may fall from their calling if they sin again. Do good works that you may persevere in your calling, that you may not lose the gifts of your calling which were given you before and not on account of works that follow and which now are retained by faith For faith does not remain in those who lose the Holy Ghost, who reject repentance, as we have just said above, that faith exists in repentance. They add other testimonies, cohering no better. Lastly, they say that this opinion was condemned a thousand years before in the the time of Augustine. This also is quite false. For the Church of Christ always held that the remission of sins is obtained freely yea the Pelagians were condemned, who contended that grace is given on account of our works. Besides, we have above shown sufficiently that we hold that good works ought necessarily to follow faith. For we do not make void the law, says Paul, Romans 3:31. yea, we establish the law, because when by faith we have received the Holy Ghost, the fulfilling of the law necessarily follows: by which love, patience, chastity, and other fruits of the Spirit gradually grow.